Welcome to this edition of the KAJ Masterclass. Tonight we have China expert, podcaster, and author Jason Zeftel live from Los Angeles, California, in the USA. Jason hosts the China Unraveled podcast, and in the podcast he covers what is really happening in China and what it means for the world. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you. So first, first let me. It's a it's a great time for a China discussion, Jason. And let me first read out that some some of the top China related headlines that I found for the last twenty four hours. And this is one uh, one which I got on the top. It says China sends largest incursion of warplanes into Taiwan defense zone since October. The second big headline is U.S. signal to China. Stay away from Taiwan during Ukraine crisis. And the third is China accuses U.S. Japan of smear, smearing it baselessly. And last headline that I saw was that Australia PM's WeChat account has vanished. His what? What has vanished? The WeChat WeChat account oh, has vanished. vanished. Have, wow. Yeah, yeah. They have He's... accused. They have accused. In a way, allegedly, you can say that it's there is a China hand in it. So China is is the talk for at a lot of places, and we are talking about uh, that everybody knows what uh, what they want from China. It's the manufacturing hub of the world as such, but nobody knows exactly what does China want from the world. So that we will focus our discussion around. So in your words, as a China expert, Jason, I want to understand for you what does China mean? Can you explain how do you see China through your eyes as an expert. Sure. Yeah. So the big question is always, what exactly is China up to? What does it actually want? Everybody's always very curious. And the simple answer is, like any other country, China would love really to be the top dog in the world, right? It would love to be number one. It would love to be the prime country in the world. And on a deep level, China and the Chinese people and the Chinese state are very interested in making that happen. And there's a big triumphalist narrative that China is on its way, that it's rising, that it's on the ascent, and that it's soon going to be number one in the world. Truth is, that is much harder. It's much easier said than done to actually do that. And when you go through those headlines, you start to see some of the reasons why. Those are very classic China headlines. Oh wow, you're now you're encouraging. There's more incursions into Taiwanese airspace. You're getting into a fuss with the United States and with Japan. You're now retaliating against Australia. These are Basically, stories that have been going on for years, and some of them are relatively new. Australia sort of came up in the last three, four years, but now it's a major set side of conflict. China and Australia have had many problems for many years. Now, China and I mean Australia and the United States are getting much closer with military ties and other ties, and none of this is good. And this is the problem for China. Yes, you want to be number one in the world, but also underneath that, that's the grand ambition. The deeper ambition is just to stay in one piece. That's actually probably the more honest and real and historically accurate thing the Chinese government is really interested in. Chinese history, if you look at it, China does not stay in one piece, one big powerful piece for very long. And there's a lot of forces in China that are making it very tough to keep the the country together. And that's really what the Chinese state is up to. It wants to be number one, but it'd rather just be in one piece. So, so Jason, you you mean to say it's the Internal issue. China is trying to、uh, be the way it wants to be as a country. Is that what is determining 
all the policies, especially on the foreign, uh, foreign affairs side, or even in terms of its economic uh, strength and, and, you know, almost like flexing its muscles to the world. How do you see both the things uh, getting managed to be, uh, now and, and in times to come? Sure. I think it's, a very, it's not the only important element, but it's very, very, very important. A lot of the policies and a lot of the belligerence and antagonism and conflict Chinese diplomats seem to be creating all around the world with their wolf warrior-esque diplomacy, a lot of it is internal politics. It's it's for the consumption of the Chinese domestic audience to show them, look, we're powerful, we're standing up for ourselves, we're no longer being beaten down by foreign countries, we have, we have come into our own and can stand up for ourselves. That's actually very, very important in China. And just to that question of the internal tensions, it's great we're talking to you in India and to people who are listening in India, because India is also a very large country with some yes. states, provinces that have enormous, more people than Europe has, right? And it's yes. a challenge. It is a enormous challenge to keep everything together, to get everyone on the same page, to make sure everyone's working together. And India's response is, is more normal to like, okay, well, it's all kind of decentralized and that's what we do. China does the opposite. It says, no, everybody, one, one government, one page, let's do it. And it, it manages to achieve a lot when it does that, but it also is so hard to keep everything together. And Indians would know best about exactly why. You know, people in Kerala, you know, they don't quite care what's going on in the Northeast. They don't quite care if you're in Tabul Nadu. You don't quite care what's going on in Goa. It's very different. It's very difficult. Yeah, we have got something called unity and diversity, but each uh, state has its own uh, issues to look at on its own, you know, issues to focus on. But you seem to have a great idea about India. We will come to uh, the Indian context, India and China, Indo-China relationship as such. But you said that it is the internal uh, issues that China wants to manage and that's the way, we, that's why it's behaving the way it's behaving. But is that what China just wants from the world? Is it is it seeing so much of threat from outside the world that it wants to just you know uh, just it's it's guiding its policies the way it is in in terms of australia in terms of usa in terms of the south china sea with japan with taiwan so how does if you look at it from the other way how does the world deal with china and with vis-a-vis -vis the what china exactly wants from the world sure well what's ironic is that it's actually shifted profoundly. So if you look the 1990s through the 2000s, maybe to 2010, 2012, 2014, the world was very accommodating to China. They said, okay, you have these problems in, in Xinjiang and Tibet and Hong Kong and obviously Taiwan, but it's okay. You're still a developing country. You're very useful. You create a lot of manufactured goods. It's okay. That's fine. And that was what was happening when China was still developing. And then when China's gotten to a higher stage of development, all of these actually become problem points now. So instead of things getting better and China suddenly having, oh, wow, we've, we've developed more and now all the world respects us. Now all of these issues are blowing up in our face. Hong Kong and Taiwan and Xinjiang with the, the Uyghur and the, and the Muslim and the forced labor problem. All of that is a problem. Even issues with Tibet, all these classic issues have just resurfaced. And the problem for China is, like I was saying, there's all these tensions within China. There's so many issues. There's so many issues. There's problems with Russia, believe it or not. There's problems with the Koreas. There's problems with Japan, with a lot many islands and with a long, painful history. There's Taiwan. 
there's obviously even Vietnam, there's India, there's, it's so, China has more neighbors in a lot of ways than almost any other country. And almost half of these countries either claim land from China or basically long historical enemies. So it's a very challenging situation. So how, what is the way forward? Now the world has to deal with China because uh, from the manufacturing aspect, if you see either from a US perspective or even from India perspective, which uh, uh, in detail I'll come later on, but from the world's perspective, they need China because China gives them what they want in terms of uh, the products that they need, in terms of the deep manufacturing uh, capacities that China has. After COVID, whatever, every country has their own way of now looking at China uh, and, and the outlook that they have for China. And China will also, is also aware perhaps that the world, uh, you know, perhaps look at it as, as the place from where the COVID or the coronavirus actually came from. Whatever the truth in, is, in, in that is, but how does China uh, dispel that notion for the world? Because somewhere, whatever the long-term perspective for China or the Chinese authorities is, they need to still deal with the world. How, what is the way forward for business? What is the way forward for politics? Yeah, it's a it's a real challenge is the the first of it. It is not there's no easy way forward. And a good example of why is just what's happening to a lot of major US companies that are based in China or that do business in China or that desire the Chinese market. The NBA, Nike, Walmart, Intel, many of these companies are currently getting squeezed basically in a vice because what China has done on a legal internal level is it has in many ways made complying with U.S. laws and sanctions illegal in China. And so it has almost an anti-sanctions platform where if you follow U.S. laws, you're breaking Chinese laws. So what this is doing is it's actually making on a basic formal level compatibility between these two countries almost impossible, right? And in China, that's that doesn't quite matter because the legal system can do whatever the Communist Party wants it to do. It can mean nothing for one company and you could throw the book at another company depending on how you feel, what the government wants. So that is the sort of level of preference and capacity that the, the state can throw out at different companies. It can do whatever it wants. It has a lot of leverage and leeway to treat companies the way they want. But at a basic level, the platforms that we've established and that we've known to deal for companies to deal with China and to find a way to navigate its peculiarities, it is becoming almost impossible to do that in the modern world. Because also in China, there are large nationalist mobs, basically online in particular, that get called up whenever there's a problem, or whenever there seems to be a company that is undermining or mistreating or otherwise scorning China. And the government has a big hand in creating these mobs. And they also just allow them to, to form naturally because nationalism has become such an important part of the governing platform of the Communist Party. So all of that is already making it very hard. But like you said, Everyone needs China in some way, right? Because of this prime position it has, particularly in man in manufacturing. And that is definitely true, but it is very much changing. And it really depends at this point on a sector-by-sector -sector industrial and other... It's very much a sector-by-sector -sector issue at this point. It's no longer broad-based. For example, consumer manufacturing, consumer electronics manufacturing in China is still... It's still based in almost entirely in China. 
the Apple supply chain, all of that is centered in China. But in a lot of other places, they've been diversifying their supply chains. Businesses have been diversifying. They've been trying to not be so beholden if push comes to shove in China. And unfortunately for China, the their policies during COVID, particularly late during COVID, have basically recently have been very bad for manufacturing. So all of the lockdowns, the shutdowns of ports and the compromises in the distribution network in China are very bad for business, as are the energy problems and many other things that are going on in China from energy inflation and labor inflation to other, like I mentioned, some of the more subtle social factors in China, let alone the political activity of the Communist Party. All of this is making it very difficult. And you just brought up also whether the COVID policy, where this is going to bring China and its relationship to the rest of the world. Well, what happened is that COVID did quite literally come out of China, whether it came from a lab, whether it came from this, whatever, we, we don't have to get into that, but it did appear in China. And the Communist Party actually tried to dispute that early on. It tried to say perhaps it came from Italy, perhaps it came from outside of China, from some other place, whatever. And even to this day, any new COVID cases are often said to arrive out of, from elsewhere out of China. It's part of the government's policy of making China seem pure and clean and successful in its COVID policies versus a world that is otherwise dirty, unclean, and unsuccessful, and more incompetent than the Communist Party. But the undeniable fact at the base of all this is that COVID did come from China, and China can't deny that in, in any real way outside of that country, but it also can't sort of solve this problem either. It tried to, right? So it tried to send personal protective equipment all around the world. It tried to basically make it seem like China was the arsenal of medicine that would save the world from the pandemic, even though it was also the country that spawned the pandemic. So that didn't work. Ultimately, it didn't work because other countries, there were so many problems with the manufacturing of personal protective equipment that that was one of the major inducements to why countries around the world now or regions such as Europe, the EU, are basically going even more protectionist and nationalist than they were say 2016, 17, 18, the COVID storm that has hit the world has basically pushed wide swaths of the world to be and try and be as independent as they can, whether it's in certain manufactured goods, whether it's in medical equipment, whether it's in ventilators, any other thing, countries are trying to be as self-sufficient as possible because the breakdown of supply chains all around the world has shown how big these vulnerabilities are. And all of this is very bad for China because these supply chains are centered on China. And so the natural consequence of renationalizing, re-regionalizing, re-protectionizing, if that's a word, all of these industries is that it decentralizes them and it moves them away from China. And that is something that the Communist Party is very worried about right now because it's a very real phenomenon and it's occurring in addition to the those natural reasons of of self-sufficiency around the world, it's also just the problems within China. A lot of manufacturers that were less willing to move out of China due to cost reasons and all of their accumulated history and activity there in 2018 are much more willing and are already beginning to change things in 2022. So this is a this is a pattern that things are slowly unwinding in China. And like I said earlier, it's case by case. Certain industries are moving slower. Others are moving faster. Some are just moving to Vietnam. Some are moving to other parts of Southeast Asia. Some are moving to Mexico. Some are even moving back to the United States or perhaps to India, which I know less about. But that is the way things are going in China right now. Well, for 
people, uh, countries uh, in their effort to survive without perhaps means have they started to be begin uh, discounting China as their manufacturing say partner in uh, do you get a sense uh, some something like that is it is it the way forward for that company do you get a sense like that uh, how do you think uh, China will look at this if it is if it's a yes yes as such it's a very bad situation for the Communist Party because China right now makes around 30 over a third of all manufactured goods in the world and that is the core of how it developed the way it did and it did an export-oriented form of industrialization and modernization. And, excuse me, it reinvested in the country, built all the infrastructure that it had, and then tried to move up the value chain as many other countries, particularly Japan and Germany did before it. The challenge for China is that it needs to move its development model away from exports. And it has been trying to do this for many years, but it has no idea how to actually do it, right? Every time it tries, you're like, uh-oh, it looks like the property sector is going to blow up. Uh-oh, it looks like unemployment is going to explode. And then they always backtrack and go back to what worked. And so you still live in a world where the most prosperous and innovative and techno technologically capable regions in China are all coastal export zones that export to the rest of the world and that did exactly what I said. They developed and reinvested and built themselves on top of that platform. It is very hard for China to function if that platform if that pillar of its economy disappears, it brings in hard currency. It brings in many things. It also now helps China with its current account. So the balance of imports and exports in China has been steadily moving towards imports, right? And before COVID, COVID obviously sort of changed things because it supercharged all the needs and all the manufactured goods that everyone required around the world, which also spurred that protectionism because everyone suddenly realized, oh my God, we're buying everything now and we need it. it's all coming from China. That, but nonetheless, the current account in China is trending towards the red because it's built so much. It's built so many cities. It's built so many systems and doesn't have all the resources it needs to maintain these systems, whether it's commodities, whether it's refined goods, whether it's machine tools, doesn't matter what industry it doesn't have every single thing, not even close in China. So it is now an import heavy country. And if it loses, this export sector, that's a very bad thing for, for many aspects of the Chinese economy from the the monetary so, so, system to the currency. Yeah. So, Jason, if if, if it if it's a changing world uh, that's looking at China in a very different manner uh, until before COVID, uh, how, do, how do you view now that will China uh, uh, flex its muscles much more? The present situation, does it indicate about Taiwan, about what's happening with uh, in other uh, with other countries? What do you read out of it? Should I, you know, suggest that we are moving towards a uh, what you call um, conflict sort of a situation in the world? I would not want to use, uh, you know, a situation called a war again in a you know, world war as such, but the conflict sort of a situation is certainly, uh, you know, making everybody wake up and see how it turns out. How do you see this? Right. So we won't have a world war because there's no longer sort of a world scale conflict, but there could definitely definitely be global impacts to many of these conflicts, whether it's in Ukraine or a potential conflict, particularly or most likely over Taiwan or something in the Sea of Japan, the or East China Sea, whichever one to call it. The these are real issues and they've become more and more 
probable as time goes on. So there are many factors that push China to not go to war, right? Or not to get into any sort of military conflict. One is the massive military, U.S. military presence in East Asia. There's the U.S. alliance system with multiple countries. And there's, of course, the fact that China needs this world of goods and imports and exports and commodities and everything to flow, right? A, a war destroys all of that, right? It makes it very hard to for normal economies to function and makes all of these systems that countries rely on to keep everything running. China in particular, it needs energy, which is a really big one and that comes from the sea. That is a really tough thing to deal with. And so China's always pushed, you know, it's, it's made big motions. It's made big, loud gestures and it constantly is in invading China, uh, Taiwanese airspace, right? To just show that it's still doing this and it's doing it with more and more planes, more and more vehicles, that's fine. But the the real thing is that there's always been factors that push against war. Nonetheless, there are probably more forces pushing towards the potential for conflict than there have been in a very long time. And just some of those reasons are basically the the downturn in the Chinese economy, which is very large, very profound, and very sustained, and very wide-based all around the country, is a real problem for the Communist Party. And the Communist Party runs on its perception of competence in the eyes of the people. And as well, it runs on basically performance and nationalism, right? It needs to have this belief in the Chinese people that China is moving to the world stage, is moving up to the top. Like we said right at the beginning, China wants wants everyone to think it's going to be number one. And in particular, it wants the Chinese people to think it's going to be number one. And it's been selling them that for a very long time as the natural outgrowth of the highly successful Chinese development policies, right? That's the, the line they have in China. And that is just a very difficult thing for people to continue to believe when opportunities and jobs and everything seem much fewer, they just seem few and far between. So that is the, the real challenge the Communist Party is facing. And it isn't like other countries like India or the United States where there's elections and where there's some sort of correcting mechanism to change policies, platforms, to feel out different ideas among people, among groups. There's none of that. It all has to happen within the party. And that makes a much more difficult ship to steer and to change direction in. And the real opportunity for the Communist Party in a military conflict is this ability to, let's say, reclaim Taiwan complete the national integration of all Chinese territory that the Communist Party has been advocating for, for since 1949, that is a, a big deal in this internal perspective of let's make sure China is one in one piece on its way to being number one, not being thwarted by other countries, et cetera. The challenge is that, and another reason why China has historically really avoided conflict is it can't lose, right? So this is a you have to win. This is a win-only situation. You can't go lose a war to conquer Taiwan and then expect to have any support in China, right? And let alone the fact that that would really wreck all sorts of elements of the Chinese economy. You can't lose this war, right? And so for many years, China would have just have lost this war. And I, I still do believe it would not succeed in conquering and occupying and basically possessing Taiwan. There's a lot of things that make that very difficult, although it is gaining more and more of a capacity to do so and to do so successfully with every 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 year that passes by. So that increases the confidence of the, the military and the state in China that perhaps now is the time, perhaps the economic prospects 
are growing too slim. The political repercussions of that are growing worse. And the balance uh, of basically the cost benefit analysis of going to war, particularly around Taiwan, is starting to look better and better. Uh, Jason, uh, if I understand, you have stayed in China for quite a bit. Am I right? Yeah, I was in China between 2010 and 2015, multiple times. So that's that's a lot many years. Uh, you have seen China from inside. What do you understand are China's weaknesses as such uh, being a part of their, uh, you know, having stayed there, actually? Well, the interesting thing about China, it's kind of like India in this way, kind of like the United States, is that being in China only gives you a little bit of what you need, right? So even the time I spent particularly in Beijing, it gives you a sense of the country, but just like going to Washington, D.C. and living there for a while wouldn't show you all of the United States or just living in New Delhi wouldn't give you the best understanding of, of India entirely. Right. China is very similar. It, it is very large and very old and very diverse. And that is what makes it such a challenge. That is the biggest reason why China is so inscrutable and hard to understand by most people. So the there is definitely a lot, I, I guess I could say I learned in China, but the the deeper questions, I guess the deeper problems within China aren't just something you would see on the ground in the in the country. Although you do see it, you do see economic tensions, you do see problems, you do see the scale of development, you see many things that are essential. But a lot of China's problems are very old historical problems that are just reemerging in a new form. So the a big one these days is just a major division between the coastal regions in China and basically everything else. So I talked about this development model that was based on exports and the regions the regions in China that export are the ones that are close to the sea, right? These are interestingly enough, this is not normal in Chinese history. For most of Chinese history, the sea was closed off and the Chinese were kept in on the mainland and they were basically forbidden from going out to sea because the sea was such a problem. It brought too many negative forces into China. But starting basically when the British opened up the country in the 19th century, not opened up the country, basically pried it open and all the European powers started to do that. And then again in, 19, in the late 1970s, China opened up the country and it did so during a period of US basically hegemony around the world where there was no potential conflict with Japan or any of the historical nations that have warred with China in this sense, and sort of in this maritime context, China was able to develop in a way that it had never developed before. And that means that these coastal regions in China, which have historically had numerous problems, they expanded as kind of never before in Chinese history. And these regions, particularly the Pearl River Delta, where Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Hong Kong are, the Yangtze River Delta, all the region, the giant region around Shanghai, roughly speaking, all of these regions, these two regions in particular, are so much more competitive and so much more of a great investment than the vast majority of China that there are gaps that you can't really, that are hard to fathom in a lot of other countries, right? So they can build as much as they want and as many railroads and electric lines and whatever they want to build in the rest of China. And you still can't get outcomes one-tenth as good as some of these coastal export regions. And so there's major, major tensions about how exactly is are the goods supposed to be more widely distributed in China? Because like India, there's this isn't like the United States, tens of millions of people. You're dealing with hundreds of millions of people who are looking for this better life. And the Communist Party at this point cannot even pretend to offer that 
better life, right? So just relatively recently, a decade or two ago, there was a go west strategy where China was talking about how his development model was going to go west, meaning move further inland into China, bring more and more of these less developed regions in China online, integrate them with the world economy, et cetera, et cetera. And it spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to do this. And its outcomes were very, very poor. And they were very bad. So the th this is some of the, the deeper problem that, that is just spewing, sprouting in China. And there's really no great way to deal with it. And the problem of changing its development model is that it would lose the core, these export regions if it starts to try and transform it into something different, something more like the United States, something more of a, a consumer economy, you're suddenly really kind of shaking, you're shaking the whole tree down to see what might, and all sorts of things might start falling is basically what's going on. So, uh, Jason, uh, if you, you keep on talking to businesses, you keep on talking to other people who are doing business with China, if suppose there is a company, small, big, medium size, and looking to do business with China as a start, what would be your you know, advice, some tips that you would want to give uh, to such a company which is wanting to enter into China at this, uh, this uh, stage in time? Yeah, so I actually do. I'll do. I don't do sort of long term consulting with companies, but I do a lot of business advising and I basically listen to the just listen to the specific business its context why it wants to go to china what it already what processes or investments or it has already in the country what it's seeking to do how it's seeking to grow and i try and give it a medium a short medium and long term outlook for what it can do right so a lot of country a lot of companies i if you if i do a general advice the reason i do this more particularly cuz if i give general advice it's like well people being in china might not be the best idea 10 years from now you probably maybe don't want to be there if you're in a lot of industries, right? But that's not what businesses tend to want to hear. They want it more nuanced. Well, they're like, can I still eke out a couple of years worth of really low prices and all this? So it tends to be more specific and more nuanced and more textured and context specific. But in general, the the relationship between China and particularly the West, the Europe and the United States is not good. And particularly with the United States, the deeper... The deeper reason for the conflict we're seeing with the United States and China, one way to look at it, or one useful way to look at it, is that the United States is the major power in the world, that everybody knows that. And when another country reaches about two-thirds, you know, heading towards three-fourths of U.S. GDP, the United States tends to freak out and start targeting it, basically, right? Almost on an unconscious level, right? This is just, you know, any country trying to keep its position in the world. And that's what happened to Germany, you know, Germany, when it did its thing in Europe multiple times, it first and second world war, it happened to Soviet Union afterwards when it tried to take over the world, even happened to Japan briefly in the late eighties. And now it's happening to China. And obviously there, everyone could say, Oh, China might win some major conflict. And that's a, probably a discussion for another time, but in general, it's very hard for China to function in a world where the U S has built the system that it partakes in. And there's no alternative system, right? The, the most amusing thing about China is it's all, everyone is always asking the United States, well, who's on its team, right? Who's on its team, right? Like, who, which country? And the country that often gets brought up is always Pakistan, which is hilarious. It's like, well, that doesn't seem like the best team. Uh, that doesn't seem like the team, Pakistan and North Korea, whatever. It's like, that doesn't seem like it's going to win you much. And China's challenge is you still, it still needs the United States. So when people want to look at the, the Trump trade war, for example, 
it just seemed like such a galling, galling, horrible experience, right? To any country to just be blithely targeted by a major country and to have, it, it just seems horrible, right? It seems like exactly the sort of thing the Communist Party would fight to prevent and to make a big stand over because it's very similar to conflicts between major powers in like the 19th century when there was countries were just sort of trying to stomp over a stomp all over other countries right but what we actually saw with china and the u.s during that row was basically that china didn't actually do that many large retaliatory retaliatory gestures and the reason is it doesn't actually have quite the ammunition in this respect that it has seemed like it does and obviously this is a larger discussion probably for a different time but these challenges are real and there, there's a big reason why china isn't consistently doing actual measures against the United States, right? There's large, there's discussions, there's uh, major commentaries, there's all sorts of threats and all this stuff, but the actual actions are always more limited because there's many systems, whether it's the dollar system, whether it's global trade, whether it's basically the, the entire network of agreements that, that bind the, the trading world together, all of this still relies on the United States. And it's very hard to for China to back back out of this in any way without rupturing everything right china for a long time has wanted to create or has sort of been just acting like it might create a separate system right people remember the belt and road india in particular remembers the belt and road a lot right, belt and road was right. supposed to be some sort of like counterpart to the world we live in it's like no it just became a random disaster of all sorts of loans that are going bad and all sorts of investments that aren't going to pay off and there's a deeper history to, to what happened with that whole story but in general there's no alternative system that's been built right if you know if there was going to be something like that it would already exist and instead china is stuck with dealing with the same countries around it that are all allied with the united states the same global system which is still centered on the united states as the core consuming country in the world where it china relies on to basically bring in all that hard currency and to feel fund the massive investments and to help stabilize the wholly overcapitalized financial and monetary system in china this is all still with it. And it's very hard to move away from this world. It's very hard to see how anyone moves away from this world. And that's the real challenge the, the world is facing right now. What exactly do we do when opportunities and growth start to fade, right? This system that the United States had built and kind of maintained did bring, among other like natural factors in the world, helped to create a world that was, generally speaking, more prosperous than almost any other. And that era, unfortunately, for anyone who's listening, it doesn't uh, already hasn't heard this before. It's almost certainly coming to an end for various reasons. And COVID already made it feel like that. But COVID was just accelerating deeper trends that were underlying this whole this whole crisis. Right. So whether it's what, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, what the sense that Taiwan, I mean, China might do something on Taiwan, which even your headline you brought up at the beginning, even the United States is worried. Oh, God, is if is ever is ever, are all the fires going to start springing up? everywhere all at once right and that's a i mean i i don't think that's particularly likely especially with the olympics going on it doesn't seem like you're going to invade taiwan <laughs> with the olympics going on at the same time but this is still some of the inherent dangers of this more conflict heavy more uncertain and less prosperous world that we're kind of entering into in economics uh, jason there's something called the comparative cost advantage so the world went to do business with china uh, based on this theory called competitive cost advantage that you get things manufactured there and it will be easier and cheaper for you. Ch uh, U.S. And went to do business with China and so much of its GDP is being controlled by 
uh, China. Now, how do you see all these threats and flexing of muscles? This can, you know, some sometime it can it can you know misfire, or even if it doesn't, it's not a comfortable scenario for the whole world because people take cues, economics take cues from that whatever is happening uh, between China and uh, and USA. So the problem is that how does any government, you can say Biden or or even later on, how do they come out of this situation? And 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 will China actually let them come out of it? And is it is it some sort of a threat of uh, conflict or larger conflict in years to come, if not maybe months from now? Yeah, I don't. Unfortunately, I don't see a way out of this for politicians. Well, first of all, our politicians around the world don't seem like they're so interested <laughs> in creating some grand new unified, happy, harmonious world, right? Like COVID was a great ex way to try. Hey, there's a global issue. Let's all band together and let's solve it, right? No. Instead, let's so, all so, retreat so into who, our who, homes. Who, who does the Nobel Prize, uh, Peace, Nobel Peace Prize go, go to then? <laughs> I don't know whoever whoever makes the the readers feel good right I, at this point I don't even know but the this deeper challenge is that you look back to the 1940s the 1950s 60s all this this period where you got all these institutions that were developed to help a sort of multilateral broad broad based development around the world you had the IMF you have the World Bank you have all these institutions we don't have we're not developing new ones right the old ones are dying in many ways they can't keep up with the world that's coming Right. And we don't have a political class, particularly in the United States, that, that spearheaded a lot of that, that can recreate anything better. So unfortunately, we're going to be stuck with much more nation-to-nation -nation interactions, right? More of this bilateral thing, more of these quasi-alliances, all this kind of stuff. And there's not going to be the same global platform, especially for smaller countries, less developed countries, to sort of all get a, a hand on, on, this, on a sort of joint effort to to build a, a better world like this this era that optimism that enthusiasm that hopefulness is not present in our current world and i'm not saying it's gone forever and the world is doomed but in the near term COVID has really shown us that countries are retreating to themselves and to their regions and they're trying to make become as self-sufficient as possible and china is a great example china is doing this more than any other country almost right they're trying to be self-sufficient in everything right whether it's semiconductors and agriculture, food, wheat, everything. It's They want to be self-sufficient in everything. Even going to Mars. Even going to Mars, right? Just the U.S. can't go to Mars, right? It's got to be China, yeah, too. Right. We have to be self-sufficient in Mars and the moon, right? Uh, yeah. And that is, that's not a sign that people are going to get on the same page and work together, right? It's a sign that people, that nations are starting to realize that this era of a sort of unified global platform, everybody, maybe we're, yes, we have problems, but we'll work through them to, work together to solve different problems, that's kind of faded. And, and to bring up that comparative cost advantage that you brought up, that's a much less hard and firm sort of concept than economics, tr traditional economics will make it out to be. For example, China has a had a great cost advantage compared to the rest of the world, let's say late 80s, 90s through the 2000s, but it achieved that cost advantage by having no environmental regulations, no healthcare costs for its population, no basically labor rules, super cheap labor, almost, it basically did everything possible to reduce the, all the costs that any business would have to pay 
especially, and it was very willing to reduce the labor, entire labor share of income in its entire country to do that, just to build as much capacity in an industrial sector as possible. It was willing to lower the bar for everything. And so it artificially lowered its cost advantage to something that is not, you know, it's hard to say if it's real or unreal, but that's kind of the way it worked. And that's part of the reason that globalization in general is under so much threat, right? And so if people who are listening want to know what are the two, what are two very big themes to keep in mind for China, for the world uh, in this decade, deglobalization is a great buzzword for what's really going on for everything that I've talked about. That is, and obviously you'll hear, that's a very difficult thing to say. If you go to a lot of developing countries, it might be similar in India. Globalization is the thing that countries are relying on. So Xi Jinping just went to the to Davos and said, globalization, there's no stopping globalization, right? It's going on forever. And he's not saying that because it's true. He's saying it because China needs globalization, right? Without it, this system, like we've talked about throughout the, this conversation today, is very hard to maintain. It's almost it's basically impossible to maintain, actually. So deglobalization is real. And then depopulation is the second part of this story. And just like globalization, depopulation is happening in a major way in China. So at this point, India is almost certainly a larger population than China. You won't see that in official statistics because Chinese official maybe statistics... Officially, you've got to wait till next year, perhaps, Jason. 2023, what? maybe. Maybe yeah. officially, you've got to see next no, year maybe no it's it's uh well it might be india's india's growing so quickly but china's official statistics haven't been reliable for 15 years right if you just think about the basic math here the total fertility ratio is basically how many good, children good, does a woman good have for us we, good for us we want to be number two for a long time at least in this area yeah <laughs> yeah maybe that that makes sense but if china's had a one child policy since the early 1980s enforced since the early 1980s and you the total fertility ratio is how many children a woman has it should be near one right it shouldn't be near two that doesn't make any sense so it's always been very very bad but this problem of and even india actually for the first time india's fertility ratio is finally stabilized i think it was this year that it finally is yes. starting to come down that's the yeah, last yeah, yeah. grand holdout and with this yeah. i mean obviously india depopulation makes you guys hear this you're like what what are you talking about it's a very different problem in india but in china you have a massive, massive population bust that's in the process right now. And the combination of a deglobalizing world where you're no longer the natural center of all this manufacturing, where, and this is the other side to it. So I was saying that the, the cost advantage can be very artificially manipulated, right? By the government, by various factors. You could also change this cost advantage with tariffs, with nationalism, with protectionism, all this stuff. That's part of the reason it's so hated in, in, traditional economics is because it, it alters and distorts all these things. Of course, you can also alter and distort them on the other side, but it doesn't really matter. That's that's the, the problem. And once you start to get that, once you start to get all these changed signals and price signals and cost signals, all that, everything starts to get very dicey and it gets very dicey for China. But the deglobalization plus depopulation is a, to, to say that's a headwind for China is an understatement. That's like a, a hurricane it's running into basically. Okay, so let me and let me be on the side of China for a bit. Uh, China is is a big country. You cannot do without it. Now let us look at it that way. Is it? Or you feel, have you ever felt that all this opposition, or the way people, or the world, or suppose I mean, let it let us make it more specific, the Western world, look at China 
in the way it looks at it uh, is because it is a closed country or communist country if you want to put it and most of the western world is democratic in nature so is it because of they are looking at it from a democratic prism prism and still they want to get the best out of china because the way for the way it is that gives them that advantage uh, which the western world wants to derive at my question is that is it so or are there perceptions misconceptions and myths about china uh, that that you uh, want to talk about any anything that you think helps sure. us understand china better yeah sure there's this huge misconceptions about china and you really nailed a big one right there you were saying the rest of the world looks at it for years decades they were hoping oh china's developing it's going to become a democracy right you heard that you heard that a lot it was like oh it's on the way it's going to china never said it is going to be democracy if you built a perception or you can you can say you can build a dream on in your own exactly. minds that means it does not work that way the world will move or a country will want to move in the way it is like even if the cold war has ended russia is the way it is or even for that way vietnam even uh, you know cuba so many countries still follow their own system even in india we followed the mixed economy for a long long time you know but anyway you you answer the uh, that misconception and the myths part well no that, that is that's 100% correct everyone particularly in the west we tried to reimagine the world in our own image and we ignored that other countries are themselves right it wasn't russia wasn't a giant sort of <clears throat> hostile large hostile european nation just because it was a communist soviet union right it was wasn't that right. it was just because it's russia and china right. in the same way china is not an authoritarian mega state because it's communist it's an authoritarian mega state because it's china this is and you go back through all of chinese history it's the exact same thing and like you said we all particularly starting in the 1990s when the, the soviet union com, the, the great the berlin wall fell cold war ended soviet union collapsed this we got into this very feel good everything is going to come together kumbaya like fantasy where the whole world was going to become just happy and nice and friendly it was going to be like wisconsin or minnesota i'm saying nice very friendly midwestern states in the united states yes, this is yes. not this is just stupid is what this was this was ridiculous and it was ignorant and it made no sense but it it fit with the times right now we're starting to see what we're really seeing around the world is that countries are behaving like themselves again right russia is behaving a lot like russia always has behaved right China is behaving a lot like China has always behaved. This is actually the deeper thing. So I personally uh, I I definitely get I could understand I could come off as oh the American who's saying China is doomed and blah 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 blah. I actually the I actually really really admire China. I have a deep I've I've been very before I even went to China, I've been interested and fascinated and very invested in China for for a very long time. And I still very much admire this country, but we have to understand that we have to take countries as they are they are not on the way to being something we imagine them to be like you said that's a fantasy that's our own fantasy because china never said once it's not it's, going to be it's also not fair it's not fair because people have got the uh, uh, got the right to determine the way they want to move on uh, the path they want to take isn't it yeah i mean this a lot of this comes from the united states in the tw early 20th century the united states decided every country could be free you know self the right to self determination it was trying to create all sorts of new nations and new states around the world partially to break up the old empires see, the biggest example you see afghanistan finally us realized that it has no role to play it's the people who will finally 
decide the way they want to, you know, decide their destiny. Yeah. The problem is most countries and most regions, when they decide their destiny, uh, their destiny is very bleak, right? So if you look yeah. since 1945, almost every country that's really developed into an advanced, high-income nation with self, self-generating sort of capital, this has basically been the same old countries, right? It's Western Europe. It's parts of Japan. You can add in like Chile and Taiwan or whatever for, for various reasons, but it's almost all the same countries. And if you exclude the petro states, right, the vast majority of the world has not developed, right? And this was in the most opportune time in history to do so. And this is actually really telling us something about the inherent economic potential of various regions and countries around the world. This is not because the people are bad or they're inferior or they're, they don't know how to work or they don't have the skills or they're backward in some way. That's not it. It's about whether the specific people in a specific region can actually develop the way that we all would want them to be in a grand harmonious world. And what unfortunately what we're seeing is that that's not true. Just like I said with China, where the interior of China is massively undeveloped even though it's massively overinvested, right? They built all the, they built more roads, more electric, more than you even want to imagine there than in they've, that has been tried in most of Africa. But still, so, they yeah. haven't developed. So any other myths and perceptions or misconceptions about China that you think should be busted? Any Anything that you can think of? Yeah, sure. So I think the idea that China, it was on its way to being a democracy is not true. Is That's false. The idea that, China has ever been anything but a sort of megastate, an authoritarian type megastate. That's not true. I think also people need to disabuse themselves of this idea that China is one country, one people and one country. This is a propaganda line of the Chinese political state, right? It's trying to keep the country together in one piece. It's trying to uh, tamp down and flatten the diversity within the country, right? It's like a new imperial India that tried to say every piece of India is the same thing. That's actually what it was, although it's much older and it's made we, much we, more progress. We believe in unity and diversity. You see... You, the uh, opposite, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so those are some misconceptions. Also, Chinese history is not a long series of powerful, integrated imperial states, one after the other, sort of rising and rising and, and falling like a phoenix, right? It just reappearing and then disappearing. Chinese history involves more chaos and warlordism than integrated powerful states, right? This is what I was getting, alluding to earlier. These tensions in China, they're not new, but if you look at Chinese history, if you look at, just go to Wikipedia and you look, you type in China, you'll just see empire, em dynasty, 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 dynasty. It doesn't, it's trying to show you a picture of China that is inaccurate. If you look, basically, there's, basically you want, it wanted these dynasties and they were maybe, they were the names that had power, but there was no authority within the country and there was warlords and chaos throughout the country. There's large periods of Chinese history that are just warlord eras. Yeah, but maybe, maybe maybe they want to look, they would like to see it as an ancient civilization which is which has existed for such a long time. Uh, maybe many people in the world, even from India's perspective, if you see, we respect them for what they are. They have been there for, and, and you see Indian history and a lot of Chinese ambassadors used to come in long, you know, early periods and have written uh, long details about India's past, and you know that that's that's the only thing that is left through which we come to know about our past. So, whatever it is, I guess that the world also has to realize and not see China in the in the way they have always wanted to see. I guess that's the only way forward. Yeah, there are amazing truths and 
ideals and historical facts and ideas about the human spirit and nature that, that are all contained in Chinese civilization, right? Chinese civilization is something very worth studying and understanding. And this is another myth maybe is that Chinese civilization is not the same thing as political China, right? As the Chinese political state. And a lot of the these myths that I'm kind of busting here, they're intentional propaganda created by all of the Chinese political states to make China seem, you know, unitary, integrated and powerful as far back into history as it can go. But just bringing up the history, even that China often says it has a 5,000 year history. China does not have a 5,000 year history in any way that is as one political state, right? China has maybe 35, 3,600 year history. And even if we're being honest, most of that time, it was very, it was, it was more like India. There were many different proto-Chinese states. But the problem is that the Chinese political state, it's urged to unify and to do the opposite of unity and diversity, unity and singularity, right? Uh, that's more what it, it says and it desires. It means it has to contort and distort much of Chinese history to fit this narrative. And that is very dangerous. And this is a big reason why it's so hard for people to get a true understanding of China, because it's almost impossible to do unless you can break through many, many layers of propaganda and misdirection and misconception, basically. It is, it's challenging. It's not like, and it's not just the Communist Party. This is, this is layers of propaganda. It's like every single layer of, of the Chinese dynasties, they, they've all been doing this. And so obviously that it takes a long time to get through, but the, the key point is, and the reason why I'll often say, like, I, I very much admire China. I very, I think there's much to learn about this country, yet I'm saying often things aren't going to turn out well for it. Uh, many of the things it does are heinous and despicable and horrid and all that kind of stuff. We have to understand that we are who, like, at least for me and some of the people listening, like, you know, if you're American, if you're from the West, you have your history, your culture, you think it's great. And that's true. But the broader understanding we're all looking for is all, how do all the different pieces, the different personalities around the world, the different per human personalities that are embodied in these various cultures, these various civilizations, these various nations, various states, what do they say about humanity in general? That is what the deeper questions about China and Chinese civilization need to get at. And this is why I actually get very animated about this stuff, because I'm very invested in trying to communicate some of the really great things that China has contributed to mankind, to that sort of thing. But unfortunately, we always get caught in these discussions about China and its current political aims and ambitions. And unfortunately, the Chinese state is, by its nature, so uh, black and red and vicious at times that it's hard to get to any of this other stuff. But I will say there's another myth. If there is a myth, is that China is not all horrid brutality all the way down. And that's something that people are seeing right now. And it, it unfortunately, it is in a lot of ways. But there are also deeper more ambiguous, vaguer, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, ideas that are you know embedded in the civilization that are very important and very worthwhile for people to learn. Right, right. Let's leave uh, leave the world and China uh, uh, at peace at the moment. Let's come down to India and China. So you follow India and China very closely. You have written about it. Uh, you have discussed about it earlier on. For us, if you you have your own perception about this relationship now. How does we look uh, look at China from a, as an Indian? We look at it as, as somebody who provides our uh, shopkeepers, our uh, a lot of businesses with cheap products, which a lot of people consume. For us, it is also an aggressor which came down in 1962 
we had a war with china it, 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 it at one side it, we find it as a good business partner in so, so many other uh, in so many spheres in business at the same time we also find it that we are having a tiff at the borders uh, with with china but we also understand that it's also a very ancient civilization if it's 3000 4000 uh, year old civilization even then it's around the same time when we had the indus valley civilization in uh, in this part of the world so and and a lot of you know earlier on like winsang and payan all these people they came down to india during our great emperors uh, what you call harsha and other people and they wrote details about India. And, you know, through their readings, we have come to know more about our history, right. our, our glorious past, you know, when India was supposedly called the, uh, the golden bird. Now, this is the way we look at China, whatever it is, it's our closest neighbor and we cannot do away with uh, uh, without China. And, we, and I guess we all recognize it. Even China recognizes you. It. How do you see India-China India, India uh, relationship uh, from that, uh, from the place that you are at. Sure. So the interesting thing about the China and India relationship is that it's actually throughout history, it's been very minimal just because of the Himalayas. They just make it very hard for these you, you two countries to really interact, right? So like you said, there's been very great Indian uh, writers and diplomats, explorers and Chinese who've come to India and back and they've written very amazing and interesting Things, and they're very historically relevant, like you mentioned. That's definitely true. But in general, India doesn't quite enter Chinese historical consciousness until basically Buddhism arrived, right? That's the first millennium right. AD. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was it. And then it sort of, Buddhism even sort of merged and transformed with the natural sort of Chinese Taoism and other folk religions and practices going on in China. But in general, the, the truth is that the, the Himalayas are the most impressive border on earth. And just to get to that, the point of these conflicts, the, the bizarre thing about this whole border conflict with India and China is that this could have been solved in the 19th century by just making a border on the ridge line, right? Like of the mountains, like you could, they, they had the option to do this in the Qing dynasty back in the night. Nobody wanted to do it. So unfortunately, we're stuck with this problem. But even then, China is very much using its conflict. I'll get to what India thinks, but China is using this conflict in part as part of that broader thing I was talking about of inflaming its China, its people with nationalism, giving them the sense that China is once more powerful and, and all of that. That's very true. And then as far as the the other basis for that conflict, the obviously the, the, the Himalayan, the Tibetan plateau is a very strategic region. But the, the basic fact of it is that it's actually much easier to integrate that region with China than with India. You're basically on the wrong side of the Himalayas, right? Just just it's just harder to do. So it kind of naturally falls e easier into China's hands. But that all is, like I said, the, the the potential for really deep conflict between these two countries is minimal. And obviously in India, you're all very concerned about China's control via the Tibetan plateau of various rivers. And uh, right, you guys all know about that. That's very true. But again, it, it doesn't, you don't exactly strangle other countries, rivers and stuff too often. That That's not a normal thing to do. But nonetheless, the Indian-China relationship is, I think like you were mentioning, the deeper aspect to it is that you two are, in a way, the, the two large remaining ancient civilizations that have sort of it, it continued on into the present day in one form or, or another. And that is very important and, and very valuable. And the reason I wrote the large article and that I've always been very interested in this is because 
in many ways, India and China are a, a deep connection to some of these old civilizations, like you mentioned, like whether it's the Shang Dynasty, mythical Shah Dynasty in China, or the Indus Valley civilization as well in, in India. These are very important. And likewise, the, I mean, just on a, a, a less economic political level, the energetic sort of practices, the yoga, the the qigong, the, all this stuff is, right, this is something that's very valuable to people these days and has sort of persisted through these many thousands of years of refinement and improvement. And like you said, it comes from a lot of this happened in periods when in India also there was very much a golden age and a golden period, perhaps at times some of the best stuff going on anywhere. Um, it was it was very impressive. The And that's that's kind of the best one of the best ways to think about it. So a lot of my other writings that I'll go into and discussions, I go into why countries are have the economic results they had. And what's very interesting about India and China is India and China have been very large. The reason they have very large populations and the reason they've been around for a very long time is very similar. There's you have very two large river systems in both countries. They support large populations and you've been able to do to possess these large populations for thousands of years basically relatively like wasn't as big obviously thousand two three thousand years ago but that's the basic story and the reason that india and china have diverged is actually the, the deepest explanation for this is actually about these rivers it's about the mountains and rivers and plains and how they connect and the sort of social and political forms that arise because of them a big one being in china they're actually able to capture to basically bring all the workers together and throw them to make them build great things, right? So in China, you can go build a great wall. You can build grand canals. You can build giant road systems. You could do all this and you could just force this labor to do what you want. And that applies today as well. China's been able to grab the largest labor force in human history and the state's able to throw them at all the projects it needs done. India has never been able to do the same thing. And so that's why in terms of a political state, the, the, the political peaks and valleys of China tend to be both larger, it gets these larger grand empires, but it also gets this larger chaotic tumbles, right? India is much more of a of a solid baseline. And these are, I mean, I, I do believe that India and China are, the, are two of the most important countries for people to look at to understand how civilizations develop, how the political states form the way they do. And it's very important. Unfortunately, it's very intricate and naughty. Uh, and I, I wouldn't want to get into all of it right now, but this is really key. And I think that people in India should know that, you know, always remember that, like you said, there's a there's a deep history to the country and there's a deep value to countries and civilizations and cultures beyond the sort of lo localized economic output that any, any place generates. It's much deeper and there's much more to it than that. Yeah. But if you see on the practical level, India, India was much ahead than China in the early 50s. Uh, I mean, in, India had just gotten independence in, uh, uh, from the British. At that point in time, and, and that, then the China, Chinese economy, uh, you know, galloped. Where do you think India lost, it, uh, lost its oh. way vis-a-vis -vis China, exactly? And what can we do? Uh, do you think India can compete with China or what we can do at this point in time? Just want to underst uh, understand sure. from your understanding where uh, this whole, uh, what you call, path that we took uh, till, till, till present. And sure. What? Yeah, sure. So the, the, the Chinese story really shifted in the late seventies, early eighties. It was, you know, it got back in with the United States and that it basically opened up its economy to the world. And what happened is that 
China did this at the perfect moment to capitalize on globalization. So particularly in the 1980s, you started to get the information systems and the transportation systems necessary to have massive distributed global supply chains all around the world. Companies were basically building every part in wherever it was cheapest, anywhere around the world. And what China did is it made itself the cheapest place, like I was saying earlier, to do everything. Anything and everything, it was like, all right, we're going to make China the cheapest and best place. It did it at that moment where companies could take advantage of that and move whole systems to China, right? And so what happened in the 80s and 90s is that China basically sucked up the gravity, sucked up all of the globalizing gravity from all other countries, right? So a big reason why India didn't develop at all in the same way is, one, it's much harder in the same way that I was saying the Chinese state can throw people at problems. It was much harder for India to capitalize on everything and to open itself up and make itself amenable to this new phase of globalization, of globalized production in the same way China did. China did it way harder, way better, and way more way more broad-based than anybody else. And there's also those export regions in China, sort of like the Goas and the other sort of traditional trading regions in China, sorry, in, in India, they, they're very good at this and they're, they have massive scale. The Both of the two major river basins in, in China, they, they get massive scale. And this scale allowed China to, basically you got the bottom of the supply chain, you're basically building very small, minimal parts, but you're doing it massive scale and you're doing it incredibly cheaply. And then you suddenly get, a little a piece a little bit higher above the value chain you basically move up the value chain and suddenly you have massive massive interconnected uh industrial nexuses in these places that are building every single type of component for every single element of a of a say an iPhone or a computer or a flat screen or whatever it is and you do that and you're you're slowly building it up and you're also soon able to innovate and you're able to add more and more value to all of these companies right you're able to do things quicker, make things faster, make things at larger scale. You're able to adjust things quicker. All this stuff was really scaled up in a way in China that the rest of the world couldn't do. And it also couldn't do it because China was doing it, right? You can't have a China developing, at a country as large as China developing at the same time a country like India was also developing. So just to give an example, in the late 1940s, the U.S., in U.S. history, you often say that the U.S. lost China, right? It lost China to the Soviet Union. It lost basically to Red China, right? And a big reason why this happened, pe people might not realize, is it's not like, well, obviously the U.S. wanted everything to be on its side, right? But also, it's a similar thing with India where you couldn't actually, part of the way this world redeveloped, right? After World War II, it's rubble everywhere, basically, right? All the major economies of the world. And the way things redeveloped is the United States, which was basically untouched by the rest of the world, by the rest of the world wars, it opened up its economy to the rest of the world. This is what the the World Trade Organization or the proto, the GATT, I guess, the IMF, all these things were doing. They were opening up the U.S. economy to all of the allied trading nations that associate with the United States. They were facing the Soviet Union and all these companies were able to bootstrap their own development using the large U.S. consumer market, which was large, vast, sophisticated, and untouched by war, right? So you were able to rebuild in this way. Japan's a great example. Japan went to war in 1942 with the United States because it didn't have all the resources it had. It had to conquer all of Asia to try and acquire all these resources that J Japan required to be an industrialized, modern nation. And then the U.S. nukes and occupies Japan, and suddenly Japan develops because the U.S. gave it. After it basically beat Japan in a war, it gave Japan every single thing that it wanted 
from those wars in the first place, right? It suddenly got access to all the resources, got access to all the oil, got access to everything. All it had to do was be on the same team as the United States. It was a better deal than what Japan got beforehand, right? It got a better deal from its the, the, the country that beat it than it got from if it had won, right? It's a bizarre situation. and But that is generally what, is, what was happening all around the world. And the problem with this is that India and China in particular are so large that to if you open up this smaller U.S. consumer economy, if you did this in the 1940s and 50s, you actually could not have developed the rest of the world at the same time. So if the U.S. had tried to keep China seriously and tried to do some sort of Marshall Plan to develop China at the same time as Europe, it wouldn't have worked. And also at the same time, China, there's a lot of worry about whether China could really develop in the same way. But this was a big reason why things happened the way they did in the, the 50s and the 60s. And India relatively was able to do a lot better because it's, I mean, its policies were just less chaotic than China. China had math. It was trying to industrialize in its backyard. It was trying, it had the cultural revolution. It had massive chaos all around the country. And a big reason why after 19, right, the late 1970s, China went so hard and it tried, it did everything in the opposite direction. Instead of trying to do this crazy ideological stuff, it just said, we're going to make this work is because of the massive experience, uh, the painful experience of everything that happened before 1950s and 60s. This was a disastrous time. So it went for broke, right? It did. It, it's like, we're going to do everything to basically try and develop. And so it really capitalized, like I was saying, on this period better than any other country. And the key thing to know about this is that it's both a feature of China that it's able to basically apply labor and capital and laws and rules and everything to get this scale and to make things work. Uh, and it's the fact that the U.S. had built this larger trading system that made it possible, right? Same way with Japan. If Japan had, after World War II, if it had just been left by itself with no empire, no connection to the United States, it would have died, basically. It didn't even have, it couldn't even, even reindustrialize. It didn't have the energy resources to even do it or the minerals or the anything, right? So that's a big thing to always keep in mind. And for China, it really is the same thing. If this globalized world had not existed, particularly in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, when China basically sucked up all the energy and sucked it away from countries like India, that would not have been possible. It doesn't matter what the Chinese state did. And to get back to that myth we were talking about, China would not have been able to develop if it had been a democracy the same way. Like I, I'm often, I mean, you can say what you want, but the... A, I would say it wouldn't be able to, but it would not have been able to achieve the same success it achieved unless it had had this classic Chinese state that is very good at centralizing and organizing. It was actually a very useful thing for the country during that period when it was capitalizing on the best sort of prime stage of globalization, sort of in the late nineteenth, late late twentieth century and very early twenty-first century. So, looking at the present situation, Jason, that world is trying in its own way to move away from China. Is that an opportunity or a window for opportunity for India to, you know, to become some sort of a manufacturing partner to the world and, and get back some of the pace that it lost in the past 30 years or so? The problem is that that phase, like I was saying, this era, we're, we're in an era of deglobalization and not reglobalization, right? So China hit it at the moment it got the best time, right? It capitalized on the best period. You're not going to see the same opportunities to do something similar in the 2020s and 2030s. And a big reason why is because, well, like I was saying earlier, depopulation and not depopulation in India, but depopulation in the major 
consumer economies and the major developed economies of the world. If you are wanting to manufacture goods for another country, the reason you're doing that is because you don't have enough internal demand to make, you know, if India needs to make, China needed to make, uh, this is a better example, China needed to make TVs and all sorts of goods for the rest of the world in the 1980s and 90s because the people in China didn't have the means to buy them. And that's the, the classic story. So to be a manufacturer, for India to be a manufacturing hub in the 19, in the 2020s and 2030s would mean that there would have to be a large group of countries that it could sell to around the world. If you don't have that, you can't be uh, that manufacturing hub. And unfortunately, we seem to be trending towards a world where this whole process of export-oriented industrialization has been the main way that every major uh, industrial economy of the last 75 years has developed, that India, I'm sorry, not India, uh, Germany, Japan, South Korea, China, all, all these countries, it's all been through this method. But most likely, this method is coming to an end as a, as a developmental, developmental policy in this, probably by 2030. It's not even going to be possible anymore because there's not enough of, cons of a consumer demand in these large, larger advanced Western economies that people have sold to. And it's particularly dangerous and dubious because right now, like I was saying earlier, we're moving into a phase where all of these countries are starting to be more protectionist, right? So they're now willing to pay higher costs to have a sense of self-sufficiency and internal resilience. And if that also happens, it's going to make it even harder. So you not only don't, you don't have this sort of demographic consumer base that you need to do this sort of an, another period of globalization like India, like China had in India in the future, you also don't even have the political, the international political environment that really made it possible. One where everyone was sort of on the same page and there was open free trade, all that kind of stuff. That's all getting more dicey. So unfortunately, no, I don't see India having a potential to sort of recreate that Chinese miracle. I actually don't see, I don't think any country is going to do it which is part of the reason I'm interested in this and focused on it is because we're going to have to understand exactly why it happened. And should things go south in China, it's going to be very important to explain why even with everything China built, it also wasn't enough to basically save that country from what's coming. But getting back to your question, yeah, it's it's unlikely. India's more much more likely to have a regional and, and unfortunately less of a less of a developmental policy that is wide through India, right? There's there's all sorts of coastal zones and certain areas in India, classic industrial centers that will do well and they'll be able to have more of a regional manufacturing presence. But the, the idea of being another global hub, I think China is probably the last one. And maybe maybe it's not for any other country to be uh, possible for any other country to be another China, perhaps. is uh, That's not the way the world is moving, I guess. No, it's not. It's not moving that way. And yeah, and also everyone saw China, right? It's going to be harder to, right. to China. Like no one, everyone's amazed that China managed to achieve what it achieved, right? Now, if any other country looked like it was about to do the same thing, you'd probably they probably get blowback a little sooner. Yeah, right, right. So in fact, Jason, there is so much to talk about China, and you can never be over with that, you know. But one last question, you know, sure. Behind your house is I get I can say is is the Hollywood, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's true. <laughs> there is the Hollywood. And you see, with changing the world dynamics, Hollywood tends to make movies. Uh, and, and particularly, villains come from different corners of the world. Earlier, it used to be some Russian-speaking guy. Then it used mm -hmm. to be some baklava-clad, you know, uh, Arabic-speaking right. guy. After COVID, do you think it will be a 
Chinese speaking guy or with a Chinese look uh, sing from very close to Hollywood. Right. How do you look at that? You know, honestly, no. So since the late 1990s, Hollywood has been very against painting China as any sort of antagonist because it's so dependent on the Chinese box office. So the reason you never got, it's actually kind of sad in, in a sense, like even as there was a large anti-China potential conflict sense brewing in the United States, you never got great films about a potential war between the US and China, just as a film, right? Not as a real thing. You never got that because you don't have it. It's like back in the Cold War, the Soviet Union wasn't buying American movies, right? So you, you didn't have to need that. But now China, especially after a movie about Tibet in the 1990s, late 1990s, they've been very, very, Hollywood, I mean, has been very, very, basically, they just censor themselves. And right now, every every movie in Hollywood is, if they want to make a lot of money and they're a big, like, Disney film, they're pre, they're, they're going, they're combing through the whole movie to make it fit China, right? So you can't have China as an enemy because the Chinese censors won't approve it and you won't get the Chinese box office. And so what's also happening is that Hollywood is really changing as a result of, you know, TikTok and streaming and all these other things. They're really changing the economics of Hollywood. And unfortunately, add in the fact that China is a one of the remaining big markets for big films. And it gets really hard to ever have uh, Chinese like anti-China sort of films or specifically films where China is the the main antagonist. Very hard to do. Unfortunately, Hollywood is also being kicked out of China in a lot of ways. China mm. has developed its own industry now, and it's using it's creating its own sort of you know box office propaganda esque films, and it, it wants to do that. It doesn't want a bunch of American films in the country anyway. So that's kind of ending, but it's probably still not going to be enough for them to just go flip to the other side and make totally anti-China movies or not even anti-China movies, Chi movies where China is the enemy. It's just unlikely. Unfortunately, I think it would be cool because they might be interesting, but no economics. <laughs> they, say may, no. they may not be saleable to a big portion of the uh, population in the world. I yeah. In, in, you see Bollywood is also selling a lot in China. So there are a lot of Indian movies, which uh, have great viewership in China. And I guess a lot of Chinese movies also are coming in, dubbed version and with subtitles, uh, mm. Hindi subtitles or uh, English sub subtitles and many people watch that. So on that on, on that note, uh, uh, Jason, it, it's been a nice discussion. You see, we started to, with the theme to understand what China wants from the world. We know what people or China, uh, the world wants from China, but we have come to understand that it's the China does not want too much from the world, but what it wants it's, uh, it's, uh, is from inside only. It just wants to be intact the way it is. Uh, I hope that's the way it is and it has no other ambitions as sometimes, you know, when from flexing of muscles like this Taiwan uh, and, and other stuff look like uh, so that we are away from any other conflict that, you know, puts the world in danger once again. Uh, on that note, Thank you very much, Jason, for, for your time and such a great, enlightening discussion and hope to have you again soon. Thank you Thanks. very, very much. Thanks.